0: Well, good morning and uh, uh, welcome to Emmanuel Bible Church. Uh, as we continue in our time of worship, we now go to a time of uh, worshiping around the scriptures. And we have been in uh, Ephesians chapter 6 as we approach really the final uh, handful of messages in the book of Ephesians. We are in this, uh, this climactic portion of this letter to the Ephesian Christians. Um, Remember that uh, uh, when we began this entire section uh, back in verse 10 on, um, on spiritual warfare and what it means for us to take up uh, the armor of God, to be fully armored in the provision that God gives us, we said that this was the climax of the entire letter. There's not a sigh, this is not an addition, an addendum, a P.S., you know, would you, you know, feed the cat? Make sure you, you know, uh, water the lawn. It's, this is kind of where Paul wants to leave them. This is the last impression that the apostle would leave on these Ephesian Christians. So this is a letter that has walked us through some of the most amazing gospel truths. right? The fact that God has preordained us to be his children in, in, in spite of our sinfulness... In spite of the fact that we are dead in our trespasses and sins, he has sent his son in history in order to redeem us for himself. And that before the foundations of the material universe were laid. He's walked us through the the depths of our depravity and the heights of his sovereign grace. And in walking all that through with us, he's given us application of how to walk. How to walk in love, how to walk in wisdom, how to be imitators of God, how to care for one another to the degree that he has even entered into our homes to talk about our human home relationships, our household codes. How do we relate to those that are closest to us in the body of Christ? He's given us so much to think about and then he will leave us with his final vision, this final illustration of what it will look like for us to walk out this Christian life. And the way that he would leave it with us in terms of the the letter to the Ephesian Christians is that it'll look like war. It'll look like fighting. It'll look like spiritual warfare for the rest of our days on earth. And that's something that we need to take soberly, we need to take seriously, and we need to examine carefully. Paul does something here where he wants to speak of the idea of war as the climax, the final illustration he wants to leave in the Ephesian mind. And so I think that's for us as well. We we are to think about what it means that our lives as Christians in this world, there's an element where it's meant to be war. Now certainly there's elements where it's meant to be family is what we are here today. We are gathered as a church body, as members of one another. That's family. There are elements in which we are light. We are going to shine the light of the gospel to a dying world. But there are parts of, of explaining what it looks like to walk from this point now into the point that the Lord calls us home. It feels and looks and it is like being in war. That's, I think, the impression that we're supposed to take away. And we do have a few more weeks in, uh, in, this, uh, in this letter to walk this out. But uh, if you don't mind, we will look at our passage. We're going to be looking at part one. There are, there are six armaments, six, six, I don't know, what do you call them? It's not just uh, uh, weapons because, right, like a shield and breastplate, they're not weapons, all right, six armaments, six pieces of your God's armor that, the, that Paul will describe as a, as a metaphor, as an illustration of those essential things that will help us to stand for battle. But as we get to that in verses 14 through 17, we look at three today, three next week. Let, let's back up all the way to verse 10 as we open our time with this reading of scripture and prayer so that we're reminded of Paul's final charge uh, for the Ephesian Christians and for us to be strong in the Lord because we need to stand um, in the midst of a fiery ordeal and war. Chapter 6, starting in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me that words, uh, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Let's take a moment in prayer and then we'll come back and look at uh, some of the armaments that the Lord has given to us. Heavenly Father, even as we come before you, we recognize that we are often so caught up in this material world and the circumstances of our lives that we are dulled into thinking that, uh, that the small difficulties or even the great successes, that that's all this life is meant to be. And Father, we recognize that this life is going to be a battle We recognize that not because it's easy for us to believe it, but because your word has affirmed and said as much. We believe your word that this is spiritual war and that we need to be prepared for the war that is before us. But Father, would you help us? Because we're often, Lord, in a stupor. We're often distracted. We have so many things that draw our affections and our thoughts towards other issues, temporary issues, circumstantial issues, challenges and temptations that lead us to believe that this is all there is. Father, we believe that we have eternal life in Jesus Christ and that eternity waits for us. So uh, give us courage to live in this life in a manner that is worthy of the Son of God Who has loved us and died for us. And Lord, even as we look at these particular armaments that that are described here in Ephesians 6, Lord, um, help us to think well of the gift of faith and all the graciousness that you have bestowed upon us, to think well of the gospel of Jesus Christ and how we stand righteously before you so that it might give us the courage and the capacity to stand firm. Remind us again and again, Lord, that we are to be strong in your strength, not in our own, and that it is your armament that will help us to withstand that evil day. So we praise you and ask that you would open our hearts to receive the word now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. As we come to verse 14 through 17, like I said, there are six particular armaments that are mentioned. We'll look at the first three. And as we do that, I want you to understand something. Paul has in mind... Right, A particular kind of soldier. This would be the Roman centurion. The centurion because they're grouped in hundreds and they were fierce, fierce warriors. In fact, according to the historians of that day, the Roman historians, the Roman centurion, that soldier, was the example par excellence of the faithful soldier. He was to be reliable under any pressure never giving way to his enemy forces. So the idea was that this individual was trained and supplied well enough that he would withstand anything that the enemy would press against them. And you know, for uh, hundreds of years, this particular type of soldier was not just successful in war, but successful in all sorts of war and they built armaments and capacities for military advances like no one had ever seen in the history of the world they were not the roman country or the roman right kingdom they were the roman empire they had conquered all of civilized the civilized world and they had done that on the backs of the roman centurion this is what paul is imagining As he's contemplating, how do I make these Christians more serious about the life that they must face? How do I impress upon these faithful brothers and sisters in Christ that there will be challenges and difficulties and that it should be assumed that these challenges, these difficulties, these trials, these fiery ordeals must come upon them? How do I illustrate for them that when they are facing the rest of their lives on earth, it is not just, I'm looking for the next blessing, Lord. I can't wait for the next wonderful thing to happen. There are wonderful blessings and things that will happen. But along the way, there's also terrible hardships and pains. And the best way that the apostle, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is able to express it to us is to compare it to war. The Roman centurion, fully armored, was by far the greatest single military thing, right, that in the arsenal of the Roman Empire. It, it, it was, yeah, they, they made catapults and, you know, like these siege engines where these towers, they pushed it up against wall. They made amazing things for war. We'll give them that. But at the heart was the Roman centurion, each individual member of the military, armed and ready for battle. If we take that illustration, I think this is what Paul's trying to give to us. He's trying to command each and every Christian soldier for the battles that they will face. And your battles will be different from my battles. Our battles will be different from each other's. But that's not the point. The point is all of us will face part of this spiritual war. And all of us have been given enough by God, to stand firm and to hold our ground. Verse 14 picks up then where we will pick up, in the armaments, right in the six armaments that God has sovereignly given to us. Verse 14 says this, Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Those are the three that we'll look at this morning, and we begin with the command. Verse. Well, let me forget to advance our slides, and then now it doesn't work. See, that's what happens. Okay, here it goes. <clears throat> belt of truth, breastplate of righteousness, and shoes of gospel peace. So as we begin with this idea of the belt of truth, is this working? Or am I? No. As we begin with the belt of truth, we begin with the the overarching command. It's this statement, stand therefore. The the imperative then kind of builds and everything else around it kind of lets us know how this standing will take place. Because so the way that I, I think it's translated real well for us, verse 14 begins with stand therefore. It's a command for us to hold our ground. There's this particular scene that whenever I think of like hold your ground militarily, um, Etc. In Gladiator, do you guys know that? That's an old movie, right? When Russell Crowe was younger, and um, is there's a scene where you know Maximus, the ex-Roman general, is now a gladiator, and his group of gladiators—they're all going to get slaughtered, right? Because it's a reenactment of this particular war in Carthage, and they're all going to get killed. But instead the general comes out in him, and he tells him to grab shields and to form kind of a, a circle to protect each other, right? And as they hold their shields, the, he just yells at them, hold, hold, and then the, the chariot is coming, hold, and the chariot hits their shields and flips over, and they end up winning. They're not supposed to win, but they end up winning. And that idea of holding in the midst of, of, of I don't know, of chariots, Enemies, soldiers coming in, that epitomizes this idea of stand therefore. Paul's saying, look, if there is a spiritual war to be fought, and if battles rage around us, and if Satan and the demons are actually out to, to upend you, they're, they're seriously about the task of trying to cause you to lose faith, Right? To, to separate yourselves from the goodness of God. If those temptations are constantly coming at us, then the command is appropriate. This is a war. What are you supposed to? You're supposed to stand. You're supposed to hold. Take your position and maintain it. This is not so much about like, hey, rush forward. This isn't the charge. I think the way that Paul looks at it, most of this is defensive. It is to hold your territory, hold your ground, stand firm. And so this stand firm is the imperative, it's the command, and all of these other things fit under it. In fact, all the other verbs that we'll encounter are participles. Having fastened the belt of truth. um, Having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. So you see, it's like this is the command and all the armaments given have been prepped for this war. You are now ready to stand. As if we think of it that way, then each armament that is, is mentioned is mentioned as a means for us to prepare For that evil day when we must stand, there's a couple passages in Isaiah that I think Paul is drawing these illustrations from. Isaiah uh, eleven five says, "Righteousness, talking about the Messiah, righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness, which you can also translate truthfulness, the belt of his loins." I think Paul is literally thinking about, you know, um, Isaiah 11, and then later we'll mention Isaiah 59. And he's thinking about Isaiah's picture of God's Messiah, his warrior, the anointed one, and how he is girded for war. And he's saying, this is us now. In Christ, we too now must be girded for war. So stand, therefore, is the command that oversees it all. And the first armament he gives us comes right after that. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. Having fastened on the belt of truth. Now, belt, the term that is used here is not, you know, your ornamental belt. And I mean by ornamental belt, like most of us that are wearing belts today, right? I, I mean, maybe, I don't know. Maybe I'm guessing half of us wear belts because it helps to keep our pants up, right? But most of us probably don't need to wear a belt But we wear it because it's kind of, it's it's ornamental. It's it's nice, right? Now we might not have. I don't know. Maybe one of you guys have a big old cowboy buckle belt, right? God bless you, man. I I, I'm down with that. That's pretty good, right? Like that's. But that's that's ornamental. It's meant to kind of be seen and to be appreciated more than it is has a particular function. But those of us, right, whose whose gut is a little spilly, right? We, we could use a belt to kind of keep things tucked in. This is what the belt that is mentioned here is about. It's not ornament. It's not ornament. I almost said ornament. Oh, it's not ornament, right? But it's essential. A, a soldier needs that belt because it helps gather in his short tunic. You're going to fight. You don't fight in a dress, right? And that, that's, that has nothing to do with, with you know, gender identity stuff. I'm saying you don't fight in something that's flowy. You don't want to get into a fight when you've got your long bathrobe on. You want to cinch it up so that you have freedom of motion. There's a reason why MMA fighters don't, don't come dressed in a suit, right? It's because they need that freedom of motion, and to get that freedom of motion when warfare is upon you, you need a belt to cinch in and gather in all the loose ends. You would gather in your short tunic and keep it tucked in. It would help to place your breastplate right in its right condition, right above, right, right above uh, um, um, your waist. And it would, it would help to, to, um, to hold your scabbard for your sword. Like this belt was essential. And if the belt meant anything else, it meant that you were ready for war. That you were ready to fight right so if if you had to fight and and you know like let, let's say like you know all these these, these crazy mutant aliens, right, just to make it ridiculous and not to point out any other people group, landed today and just wanted to kill all humans and we had to fight. And we're just dressed like in our Sunday best. What will we do? I think immediately I, I take off my jacket. I cinch up my... Because I'm ready to go. If I'm going to go, right, and I'm going to go fighting, I'm not going to do it like in my suit and going, oh, okay, you know, hold on a sec, you know. Like you're, you're going to cinch everything in and prepare yourself for the battle ahead. That's what the belt represents. And so we have similar kind of commands, right, throughout Scripture about readying ourselves for the things that are to come. Jesus himself in Luke 12 says, stay dressed. Listen to that. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and he, like men who are waiting for a master to come home from the wedding feast, so that they may open the door at, to him at once when he comes and. Not, he it's, the, it's, remember the parable of those that are waiting for um, the, the groom to come. And he's saying, stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. I, I think it's the same thing. Like, be ready. So the question is, okay, so how does the belt, this readiness, how, how does that work in terms of what is that metaphorical for? What does that symbolize? What does that mean in our life that is essential to prepare us, to to get us ready for whatever action is about to take place? And the key element here is it's the belt of truth. Truth. And we know in John 8, Jesus says that if you know the truth, the truth will set you free. So there's something about truth that is, again, liberating. Gives us motion, gives us movement, gives us freedom to to act and to respond in ways that we otherwise, without truth, cannot do. That's just a reality, right? In fact, that's baked into the the actual definition of truth. Truth allows us the freedom, the light, to know what our options are. The most frightening thing is to know that you're under duress. That something bad is going to happen to you but have no idea where it's coming from or what it'll be about. When you know, there can be a plan of action. And I think that's the point. And I think that's what Jesus is saying when he's saying, if you know the truth, the truth will set you free. Free how? Well, free from sin because now we recognize what sin is. Free from its effects and its hold on us because we know that there's other options as in faith in Christ and repentance and forgiveness of those sins. We know that we can be free from all those things that we're otherwise trapped in because we didn't know better. Without light, it doesn't matter what's in the room, you can't see it. But with light, you have the freedom to kind of see where you're going and what God would do. 1 Peter 1.13 says, Therefore, prepare your minds for action, and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I think Peter is trying to say the same thing of preparation of mind to be prepared to act. Right, And to act, to be prepared to act, to have the belt cinching in all the loose ends of our lives, I think all of that is an illustration that is built around the idea of truth. God's truth, our truth. I'm saying God's truth and our truth because the one thing that will keep coming up in all of these armaments, because each of these armaments represents something, right? It's the belt of truth. It's the breastplate of righteousness. It's the shoes of the preparation of the gospel of peace. We'll get to that. That That's a big mouthful and that's weird, right? But nevertheless, like each of them represents something. And when it represents something like truth or righteousness, the first thing I think we're inclined to ask is, wait, wait. So are we putting on God's truth? That's what we're doing, right? Are we talking about our own truthfulness? Like are we girding ourselves for action by putting on our truthfulness or God's truth? And the answer I think is both. I, I think the truth of God leads us by our imitation of him and our reverence of him to be people of truth, right? Truth in the book of Ephesians is mentioned as the word of truth, the gospel, right? The gospel of your salvation um, in uh, in Ephesians 1.13. But it speaks of not just God's truth in the gospel, but it speaks of the kind of truth that impacts and changes the way that we act and live. By the time we get to Ephesians 4, the very practical chapter of uh, how to walk out the new life, it talks about how in verse 15, we are to speak the truth in love so that we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. Is that God's truth or is that our understanding and application? I think it's both. Ephesians 4.25 says, says, listen, like there was a former way of living that we put aside. And it says this, therefore, having put away falsehood, that's the old man. We're not people of falsehoods and deceptions and trying to fake the funk and lying to each other. Put, having put aside falsehood, it says, let each of you, Christian, each of you is to speak truth with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Truth is part of what characterizes the followers of Jesus Christ because we have God's truth revealed in Scripture and in the gospel. That's what Ephesians had talked about in the first part of Ephesians. But now as a result of that, the consequence is that we try to walk out that truth in truthfulness. We speak God's truth. We apply God's truth. And we speak honestly to one another. Why? Because we are members of one another. This is what characterizes Right, the family of God, um, because we are a family, but because we are, and we are also a family of God. Truth, God's truth, is our truth, and we speak truth. And let me give you some practical application to this, because like we could leave that in that realm and go, yes, I'm gonna, I'm gonna put on my belt of truth, woo! Right, and be all excited and not know what we're talking about. What are we talking about when we're talking about putting on the belt of truth? I'll give you a few applications. One is the idea of speaking truth to one another because we are members of one another. I'll say it this way, humility, right? In speaking honestly with our struggles and pains, that is a significant part of being part of the church family. Um, Christian, we are not called to put on a pretense of being better than we are. We are not called to protect everyone else, right, from knowing our difficulties or being burdened by our... We are to share one another's burdens. And as a result of that, on our side, we are not to put on airs or to act like we're better, but to speak truth. And so to that degree... We talked about Ephesians 4, and I thought you could look at it there and kind of see, right, Ephesians 4, starting in verse 20. That's not the way you learn Christ, talking about the former manner of life. You learn Christ differently. And it says, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Deceitful desires, right, versus that which is true in Jesus, Verse 23, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Verse 25, we looked at earlier, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. And then it goes on to say, be angry, do not sin, do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. I think the give opportunity to the devil speaks to all of that that has happened previously. Not just anger, but speaking falsely, withholding information. Like like doing stuff that makes it seem like I'm better than I actually am. That's all nonsense. Speak truth one to another in the body of Christ. Secondly, embrace the truth of scripture. We need to learn and to lean on God's truth. right? We also need to be wary of falsehoods. In things that are half-truths or things that are, that are true but not nearly as significant as the general corpus of what God would have us to think about and to live for. I don't know if you guys ever considered it, but if you, if you, um, if you walk through if you, in your reading um, 2 Timothy, one of the things you find in 2 Timothy that maybe we have glossed over when we're, when we're preaching through it, when we're reading through it, Is that Paul is so adamant about stop arguing over mythologies, traditions, and all this human nonsense. He thinks it's ridiculous. I think the Lord thinks it's ridiculous that we fight so many, even theological, Twitter battles. It's weird, right? If you know the truth, then let the truth be truth. Be confident in what Christ has revealed in his word. So we are to lean and to learn God's truth and be wary of falsehood and unbalancedness that comes from half's truth. So Ephesians 4 I have up there for you. We're kind of picking it up in the mid-sentence, but I thought uh, otherwise it might not fit. Verse 14 says, so that we may no longer be children, listen to this children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemings, so that we wouldn't be tossed about by false things. Rather, verse 15, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Truth in love is the principle we draw from the idea of cinching ourselves with the belt of truth. What, What would it look like in action? It would look like the truthfulness of the gospel impacts you in such a way that you care for your brothers and sisters in Christ, that you care for those that are lost, Right? That your actions, your actions of love, flow out of the truthfulness that you know in the claims of Scripture. You are cinched up, tucked in for action because you believe God's truth. That human beings in themselves cannot save themselves. And they're all of them condemned. But that there is a Savior who has sent a son to die on the cross, to pay for our sins so that we might be free and we might know what is true. Knowing, right, being convinced of gives us a readiness to live for Christ in the midst of the worst of evil days. We know truth. We are to know truth, and we are to live truth. I think that's what the belt of truth is talking about, to live that out in such a way that we are speaking truthfully, honestly with one another, all right? And that we are living for the truth of the scriptures and who God is and what he has proclaimed. And that we are majoring in the majors because that's what the Lord would have us to do. The second point we want to get to, not just the belt of truth, but then the breastplate. The breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate of righteousness is in the second half of verse 14. It says, stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Now, breastplate is exactly what you're imagining in your minds, right? Like, if you think about, like, a Roman breastplate, it's exactly that. Usually bronze or bronzish looking, right? A Big old metal thing that they kind of hang over their front. And then, you know, because cause even if you don't look like that underneath, you you, like, make it, like, really big pectorals and, like, you know, a six-pack, like, might as well, if you're going to wear it on that, might as well look like, like you're, you're crazy powerful, right? And so they have that, and it's strapped on, and uh, the obvious purpose of the breastplate is to protect much of the vitals that are going on, right? So in close hand-to-hand combat, right, a swing of a sword hits, hits you right in the chest. Well, if you have a breastplate that protects you, that's the concept, that you're protecting that part which is vital, I said in Isaiah uh, um, 59, there's a reference to a similar kind of a breastplate. And it says this, Isaiah 59:17 says, He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head he put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak just talking about the messiah or in this case i think it's the lord right that that he is coming and he is wearing a breastplate that is righteousness so so similar to the belt of truth i think paul is drawing this out from old testament illustration to say that there is a breastplate something that protects us that is an armament for war and and you know if if someone puts on if you're if you're in Roman society in that day and someone shows up, right, into the town square fully armed, I think you assume there's something bad about to take place, right? Because they're, they're ready for war. And the breastplate was part of that. What is this breastplate? Like, like, what is the metaphor Paul is trying to paint? He says it's a breastplate of righteousness, having put on a breastplate of righteousness, and again, that, that same concept comes up. God's righteousness or our righteousness? If we're talking about exclusively of God's righteousness, and I think we would think that Paul means that we're to be armed with the righteousness that God has given to us is, that, that is Christ's righteousness that covers us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him who knew no sin, Christ did not know sin, did not do sin, so that in Him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. There's an exchange of our sinfulness in Christ's righteousness so that Christ's righteousness covers us. So that would be God's righteousness, Christ's righteousness. The fact that we are sinners, but by faith, if we have come to repent from our sins and trust in Jesus Christ for salvation, then the grace of God is sufficient to cover us, to take our sins away and place them on the cross with Christ. And to cover us with His righteousness, so that we can stand in the righteousness that Christ has given to us. So, if Paul intends to mean that we put on the breastplate of Christ's covering, then I think he means you are to remind yourself constantly that you are righteous because of who Christ is, because of what He's done, and that will be your confidence to stand firm. But if it's talking about our righteousness, all right our sanctification, then I think Paul means that in, in light of what Christ has done for us, we ourselves are pursuing a life of sanctification. We use that term, and it means to set yourself apart in holiness. You could use that in the same way of talking about pursuing righteousness in terms of our own lives, in righteousness horizontally and vertically, making sure that we are right in the way that we deal with other people. It amazes me, it astounds me sometimes when 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 some Christians feel so strongly that they have to bring condemnation and judgment to others because of the fact that they are just trying to speak what is right or righteous from the Lord and they forget that righteousness half the time in all of the Old Testament scriptures is about how I deal with other human beings. Do I deal with them justly? Do I deal with them kindly? Do I demonstrate God's graciousness and love as much as I I, I try to implore them to holiness and to honoring God and what God stands for, right? So again, I think it's a combination of both. I think we have a breastplate of righteousness because Christ's blood covers us because we are righteous in him. Our righteousness, our own righteousness is impossible, right? Isaiah 64, 6, we have all become like one who is unclean. It's like lepers. Remember, they would walk. If they're walking near any human beings or people are coming towards them, they'd have to bang on stuff and go unclean, unclean. They have to publicly announce their uncleanness to keep other people from becoming unclean like them. And, and Isaiah is saying, we are all like that. We are all spiritual lepers. All of us should be crying out our uncleanness. And all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. The best that we do in terms of morality and the things that we do that we think are right in the eyes of others is like filthy rags. We all fade like a leaf in our inequities like the wind take us away. We're going to dry up and be driven away into judgment. That's Isaiah's statement in Isaiah 64. Romans 3 says the same thing. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Okay, so what are we talking about, right? If we have this, this alien righteousness because of faith in Christ and we have God's righteousness, great. It is an impossible righteousness on our own. We have it in Christ. Fantastic. So how does that work out? What does it look like if a Christian is actually wearing, right, and putting on God's armor, particularly this breastplate of righteousness? Well, what, does that, what does that mean? What does that look like? And I think, one, it means that we take tremendous boldness because we have Christ's righteousness covering us, um, Proverbs 28.1 is one of my favorite verses in the Proverbs. It's that the wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. So I love that imagery, right? Like how do you, what are the wicked like? Well, they live in paranoia. They're running when no one's even chasing them because they're looking over their shoulder constantly. Because they know that judgment is not that far. And those of us that have lived in any pattern of sin, knowing that it is sin, we recognize that natural paranoia that God's gonna get us or someone's gonna get us, right? That, that fear of being caught, right? That is what the wicked look like. They flee when no one pursues. But the righteous, the ones that know that they are right with the living God, that they're standing before God is righteous. And for us, not because of the things that we did or didn't do, but because Christ and what he has accomplished for us. We stand in his righteousness. We are girded or we, are, we have put on his breastplate of righteousness. And as a result of that, We can be bold as lions. There is power in righteous confidence because of what Christ has done for us. Now, there's a danger, though, right? Because it's true that righteousness equals confidence and victory, spiritually speaking. But it's also true that this confidence can work backwards and we could seek to be self-righteous, right? Full of ourselves, and instead of placing Christ's righteousness over us and depending on that, it feels a lot more like my own righteousness or it feels a lot more like your righteousness trying to push down upon me. Charles Spurgeon said, nothing can damn a man but his own righteousness and nothing can save him but the righteousness of Christ. You realize there's a difference. It may not be a difference of the actual do or don't. Right? We may agree as either an unbeliever, as a Christian, that adultery is sinful. And so I'm not going to commit adultery, so I'm righteous, right? That might be true, right? But the difference between my righteousness and Christ's righteousness is that Christ covers me. I'm not righteous because I didn't commit adultery or didn't rob a bank or didn't commit murder. I'm righteous because Christ covers me. See, the outworking of the individual particular sin or sin category might look the same on the outside, right? I I do this or I don't do that. But I do this or I don't do that because, like a Pharisee, I, I demonstrate how serious I am about holiness. Or I do this and I don't do that because, like a Christian, Christ's righteousness covers me. And because I've died to the old self and have been raised to new life in Christ, I'm trying to live as a new man. See, externally, that can look identical, what I do and don't do. But internally, it has so much difference between saying my righteousness and God's righteousness through Christ in me. And that's what the breastplate is meant to be. God's righteousness through Christ in me. So let me give you a couple couple of things here. One more. Yeah, this isn't working, so I just point. (laughs) Well, it'll it'll eventually come up. The next slide, whenever eventually it comes up. But uh, one thing I think that we could do by application in terms of understanding how to put on the breastplate of righteousness is to continue to grow ever more convinced of Christ's finished work for us, to cover us. So uh, I, I, I'm going to point out Hebrews 10 a second time for the next one. But for this one, look at verse 22. That based on what Christ's blood has accomplished to cleanse us of unrighteousness, listen to verse 22. Then let us draw near with the true heart and full assurance of faith. You catch that boldness and righteousness again? Not in our righteousness, but in Christ. His blood has covered us, and so we are forgiven of our sins. So then now let us draw near. Draw near to whom? To God himself with a true heart and full assurance of faith. With sincerity, with assurance. And it says this, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. We could put the junk of our past behind us. Why? Because Christ has paid for it in full. There's no double indemnity. Christ is paid. And so have I messed? Yes, I have messed up. But I can leave that behind. I can live with a clear conscience, with a, without an evil conscience constantly condemning me because of what Christ has done for me in establishing and covering me in, in his righteousness and taking away my unrighteousness. And our bodies washed with pure water. I, I am free. So we, we should grow in our conviction of Christ's finished work for me. We, we, we are trying not to wallow in the, I'm not worthy. It is true that we are not worthy. And we find ourselves sometimes captive to that feeling like, Lord, I'm unworthy. I'm am unworthy. I am... Amen and amen. Every single time you say that, that is accurate. But the gospel has not intended, nor has the Lord intended, for you to remain there groveling for all of eternity. We are not going to be on the other side of, of, of this earth and this heavens. We're going to be in the new heavens and the new earth, and we're not going to be like rolling around in the dirt like, I don't deserve to be here. I don't No, you begin there. That's true. But the gospel is intended to give you more than that, the groveling effect of knowing you are a sinner. You are to walk with the confidence of knowing that Christ's righteousness covers you. That's why you wear a bold breastplate of righteousness. You know who you are in Christ. And you're growing in that confidence of who you are in Christ. And so what do you do if you fall into sin? I'm glad you asked, right? 1 John 1, 8 through 8-10, one of the most precious promises of scripture. Verse 8 of 1 John 1 says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. You're rocking around saying, okay, I've overcome sin, period. I I have no sin. Um, Probably not accurate. And you're probably deceiving yourself. And the truth is probably not in you. But, verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. If we say we have never been in a state of sin or sinfulness, we deny that idea that we are born into sin and that we are by nature sinners, then we make God a liar and his word can't be true in us. But verse 9 is that valuable promise. If we confess our sins, he is faithful to forgive us, to cleanse us. But do you notice that? It's not just that he is faithful. The second word there is he's faithful and just. It's, it's not just as in, you know, merely or a little bit, right? Just enough. It, this is just as in justice. He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How would he be righteous in forgiving us our sins? He'd have to pay for it himself. And that's the point. God God in Christ is faithful to forgive you of your sins, but he is also righteous and just He practices justice in the forgiveness of our sins by placing your sins on the cross and paying for hell, literally paying for your hell on the cross so that your sins might be paid for in full. And then we might have our sins forgiven and that we might be cleansed from our unrighteousness. So, the practical application, I think, of putting on the breastplate of righteousness is to review constantly that Christ's righteousness is sufficient. Yes, to grow in that confidence, and also to confess your sins regularly, to examine yourself. To ask yourselves, what was the motive in that? Why did I feel that way? What what was I thinking about that? Why would I want that? And to recognize your failability, your fallenness, your inability to do this on your own, and to confess that knowing that he he is both faithful and righteous, to cleanse you of your unrighteousness. There is nothing healthier for us than having a steady diet of confession and examination before the Lord, it humbles us, it reminds us of gospel truth, and it preps us for the battles ahead, right? Whatever else happens in our lives, we know who we are because the righteousness of Christ covers us. The last one this morning. The shoes... The shoes of gospel peace. That's the best way I might coin a phrase that is very unusual. Verse 15 says it this way. And there's a third uh, armament. And it says, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. The ESV is doing the best it can. And the best it can is not very good. Right? Um, and I'm not blaming the ESV. I mean, no translations could do this well. This is literally what it says. It doesn't even say the word shoes. If you want to transliterate the Greek, it says something like this, having bound the feet in preparation of the gospel of peace. See, so I think it is, Paul is illustrating the idea of shoes, but see, the point is not the particular shoe. It's not about strapping up your, your Nikes, right, or pulling up your Adidas, right? It, it is about not the shoe, but what the shoe gives us, a preparation for our feet with the gospel, with the gospel of peace. It speaks of the gospel, and I'm reminded um, particularly of this one uh, high school camp that, um, that I preached at the retreat. Like, it it's like, I don't know, 15 years ago? And then I remember this one high school kid, right, who, um, uh, who was an interesting kid, and he was saying, well, you know, if, uh, if I'm not living like a Christian, like I'm living in sin in front of my friends, should I still be sharing the gospel with them? And I thought that's an intriguing question. Right? In other words, he thought that you know, part of what he's supposed to do as a Christian is to share the gospel. Uh, at least he was professing himself to be a Christian. right? But he would honestly admit that he's, he's living um, not very Christian life right? in the face of the friends to whom he's allegedly supposed to share the gospel. And to, and to be honest, to be fair, uh, the way he was asking it suggested to me that it was just kind of a general qu- qu- you know kind of a, a, a question just to kind of be posed because he's supposed to ask a question and not one that he sincerely was struggling with. Nevertheless, I think the answer to that is, is the principle of splinters and logs, right? Remember the Matthew 7 principle? Um, how do you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your own, own eye when there's a log in my eye, right? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye. Then you can see clearly, and take the speck out of your brother's eye. In other words, don't bear testimony for Christ if you don't bear testimony for Christ. Don't speak words that are contrary to your actions. Take care of your actions. Do what is necessary. Remove the log from your eyes so that you can be helpful. That is a preparation necessary for whatever is to come. I think that's kind of the vein of the illustration of having your feet Bound in the preparation of the gospel of peace. If Paul is thinking about a shoe, he hasn't mentioned it, but it would probably be the Roman caliga, an open-toed leather boot, right? Nail-studded soles, so it kind of, it's like cleats, right? Cleat sandals. And then you would strap it up around and up into your shin and your ankle area. So you just tie it up and then you run around that way. The, the point of those shoes is, that, is not to run. I just said run around that way. I should, probably shouldn't have said that. I confused you, right? But it's not to run. In other words, they're not cleats designed to run fast. They wouldn't wear shoes when they ran like in the Olympic Games. Um, these were shoes that were designed like cleats to hold ground. So see, it fits, right, the original command that, that we are to stand, Right? Stand, therefore, having fastened the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. You have, you have secured your footing so that you can stand. So let's leave the, the whole idea of, of what kind of shoe aside and just mention that shoes are not mentioned here in, in the Greek. The idea is that your feet are bound in preparation The point being that you're ready, you're stable. You're ready to do what you have to do, right? And so if you are stable and you have a readiness, and that's what we mean by having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, the gospel that brings peace gives you that steadiness. So I think what Paul is referring to here is that there is a steady footing that comes from constantly reviewing and understanding what the gospel message is. There's a readiness of mind, according to A.T. Robertson, a great New Testament scholar, that comes from the gospel whose message is peace. Our minds can be settled and can be stable and can be secure When we are mentally reviewing and understanding and appreciating the gospel that gives us peace. Peace, as we often like to uh, uh, emphasize in the scriptures, is not a ceasefire. Peace is wholeness, completeness, wellness, well-being. Jesus said, my peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives, but I give to you. Let your hearts not be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Jesus is saying, I'm going to give you my wholeness, my peace. He's not just saying, I'm going to give you a ceasefire. And that ceasefire will be all you get. He's saying you have the peace of God. Philippians 4 7 talks about in all the anxieties, all the things that are troublesome in this life, right? Pray, make your request known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. There is something about the peace that comes through the gospel that is our readiness, that is our stability that makes us right not just with the lord but with one another and gives us the confidence to stand firm so let me give you a couple applications what does it look like to put on or to bind up our feet in preparation of the gospel of peace well, one one more one we go back to hebrews chapter 10 is to have a regular diet of gospel review who am i for whom do I live? Why is Christ worthy? And how I be, have I become his child? And if we do that, I think we come to terms with Hebrews 10 again, but verse 19, the basis of, of your confidence. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter into the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened through, through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near. The idea is that we have confidence Because of what Christ has done for us, we need that confidence renewed regularly. That's why we sing of gospel confidence. That's to come rehearse it when we come to the scriptures. That's to come rehearse it when we pray. We are trying to remember how good the gospel is, and that becomes stabilizing. It's It's like tying up your laces and getting ready for war. Secondly, the second passage, Isaiah 49. We remember in the gospel the peace that we have with God and that he never forgets us. This is just a good verse if you've never read this before. 49, 15 through 16 says, Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no com- compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I, am gra- I have engraved you on the palm of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. A review of the gospel is a reminder that God has never forgotten or will never forsake us. In the last passage, right, that I'll just cover for you. A review of the gospel, how does the gospel prepare us, the gospel of peace prepare us for whatever is to come? It prepares us because it reminds us of God's love for us. Romans 5, we go to that all the time, is that the beginning of that is that section on how we have been justified by faith, right? But not only this, um, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts. And then we hit verse 6, talking about God's love poured into our hearts. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one would scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God chose his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We say it all the time, and we should say it regularly. I don't know why some of the things that happen in our lives are happening. I can't give you the explanation. I know that we like to believe, and we know with confidence that God has our ultimate good in mind. But I can't say I know exactly why God sent this to your life, why God has given you this struggle or this difficulty. But I can't say with confidence that if you're a child of God, if you're a Christian, God loves you. Because the evidence of his love is always this, that God shows his love, his evidence for our love for us, is that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. He sent his son to die for you when you didn't deserve it. And that gospel truth, that stabilizes you that gives you ability to stand firm, to hold ground, and to face whatever is going to come. We need to rehearse and cling to God's truth and truthfulness in our lives. It's the belt of truth. We need to bask and cherish in God's righteousness in us, for us, because of Christ, and that is constantly remembering that Christ's righteousness covers us and to be bold because of what that righteousness means and that we want to live out that righteousness. And we need to live in readiness of the gospel of peace. And that readiness might be to take the gospel outward, but it also means readiness because we know what the gospel means and what it means for us so we could stand in battle. All of this so we might hold our ground until the Lord comes for us. Right? This is what it means to be armed, right? spiritually armed, for spiritual war, let's pray, Heavenly Father. We thank you for your grace to give us your word, to give us a time of refreshment as we um, um, as we sing your praise and think about the goodness of Jesus Christ and how our our God, our Savior, had died for us. And so, Lord, would we rehearse these truths in a way that gives us strength in times when we when things are so dark and difficult. Lord, we praise you for all the grace that you bestow upon us. But, Lord, uh, as finite beings, we need to be reminded again and again. Be kind to us. Remind us. Refresh us so we might stand in the evil day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.